Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, "What the f- are you talking about?" You insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com/switch. $45 upfront for 3 months plus taxes and fees. Promo rate for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello, I'm Stephen. And I'm Alva. On this week's New Statesman podcast... We look back at Liberal Democrat Conference. And I'm joined by Emily to discuss a new classical music app that has me discovering my inner reactionary. So, we've just got back from what, Alva, is actually your first party conference full stop. So you, My first ever conference, yeah. yeah. You really went in, in the deep end with the Liberal Democrats, who are... Yeah, so what were yeah. your impressions of it? I had a really nice time, thanks to all the NS readers who said hello, it was nice. Yeah, I found it so interesting, because obviously the Liberal Democrats thrash out all of their party policy at conference, so the debates on the main conference floor are really fascinating and quite important for what will be in their manifesto. So, the, I mean, I suppose the highlight was their debate over whether they would bring in revoking Article 50 if they won a majority at the next general election. I thought that debate was so interesting. Yeah, that would have been my highlight. There were quite good interventions from people for and against. Obviously, it passed overwhelmingly with about 90% of the people there voting in favour of it, but there were quite strong arguments made against it. Yeah, I think part of why it is the, the most fun conference to cover is because, yeah, it's yeah precisely because of the floor debates and the fact that you kind of do get this kind of sense of, oh, this is like the essence of, of politics. It's kind yeah. of people coming together, you know, there's stuff coming out of their working groups, you know, amendments. And mm. I think, you, and actually in some ways, the biggest sign that this is a party which really feels it's on the up and up again is the vote over minimum alcohol pricing. Where yeah, the debate over minimum alcohol pricing and the sugar tax was great for exactly that reason. It was this sort of thrashing out of ideology in real time. Yeah. Why did you think it's a sign that they're on the up? Because although, so particularly minimum alcohol pricing, yeah, I think although bo- both were quite close, I think the average liberal Democrat you talk to on sugar, the sugar tax, the only people who are really invested one way or the other tend to be pro it. And the people who are against it are basically like, I don't, you know, they're kind of like, they're like, I'm fine with sin taxes as a revenue raise, but I, that they, they're against them as a health pot. Yeah, they, they, but yeah, they're kind of, they're sort of wetly against them. Whereas the minimum alcohol pricing thing, there are lots of people who are really strongly think that it's punishing the poor, that it's a really bad way of thinking about addiction and unhealthy lifestyles. But I think the really striking thing is, is that for the first time, I think, since 2014, and certainly the only time I can recall uh, this happening, several of the various sort of liberal ginger groups within the party did line. Yeah, one of the reasons why it was so close is, um, oh God, I'm going to get my radical associations mixed up with my reforms. Reform, I'm just going to say it very confidently and then they could just angrily tweet tweet 
uh, tweet at us do later. Do you know, did put a fairly well-organised effort to get their people into the room. Mm. And it's not the, the last couple of years there hasn't been anything contentious. It's in the last couple of years people haven't thought, well, we might actually get back into office again. And that's why, you know, say in 2014, like the vote over airport expansion was so fraught because people really felt like it mattered. Mm-hmm. And I think that more than anything shows you know, how they kind of feel about it, even before, of course, you get into the kind of, you know, the, the unveiling of their various defectors, which we'll talk yeah. about a bit in the, the next item a little bit more. But yeah. just to remind people, how did the vote on minimum alcohol, or alcohol pricing and sugar tax go? So the, the minimum alcohol pricing vote was very narrowly won, so as in minimum alcohol pricing remains a Liberal Democrat policy, but very mm. narrowly well, I suspect it. I was about to say I suspect it won't make it to the next manifesto. Then I remember that the next Liberal Democrat manifesto is going to be in December, so it will be. Yeah. I think I think it will be quite difficult, given how contentious it is, and given how many Liberal Democrats in the parliamentary party, councillors, various sessions feel uncomfortable with it. Mm-hmm. I would be surprised if minimum alcohol pricing was 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 long for this world. Sugar tax tax did a bit better, and again, I just think is less contentious. Yeah, so they're both still policy, which I was surprised by because I didn't actually know what the Liberal Democrat policy on those was beforehand and I'd kind of assumed that they'd be against both. And it was just interesting to see people thrash that out because I do feel like that's the sort of thing that as Liberals, a lot of them feel quite strongly about, not sort of intervening in that way and it having being having a sort of punitive effect on poorer people. And also, I, I also was just quite impressed because it was my first one on like just the the really like the high quality of the speeches and everyone had really carefully studied the effect of a sugar tax in Scotland and or is it in Norway? I think there were a bit of people talking about Scotland and a bit of people talking about Norway because but... the, the data in those two countries does slightly allow you to to pick to, to, to pick yeah. and choose. <laughs> but I thought, yeah, I just thought that it was really interesting and there were lots of very moving speeches about people's own experiences with addiction and how they think that a minimum alcohol price would have impacted on them or on their family yeah it was interesting I think maybe if they debate that in a couple of years time they, those sorts of measures wouldn't pass yeah like this yeah the speeches are always a sort of brilliant part of it partly you know, my, one of my my many terrible opinions is that whenever at any conference anyone who's not old enough to vote speaks I start to tear up yeah. it's really embarrassing because I worry one year like you know like yeah like someone at someone at Tory party conference could just be like the hostile environment didn't go far enough. And, and I'd be like, you'll be there so <laughs> This young person <laughs> getting involved in the democratic process. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's one of the things I, I always particularly enjoy at Labour at Liberal Democrat Conference because every year there's always someone yeah. who you know, kind of will go like, although I'm not old enough to vote, I'm really angry about enough to oh, climate yeah. change or something. And it's just like, it's always just like... So that's a, basically a shout out to Neve at Lib Dem Conference who yeah. did a, who's 13 and did a very good speech on how she couldn't vote in the referendum on Brexit and wants people to yeah. give her the same rights that they have had. Yeah, it was very good. Yeah, very yeah. good speech, Neve. So the, I think the interesting, actually, a speech which I thought was well delivered but actually wasn't that good was Joe Swinson's leadership speech. Mm-hmm. So one of the, like, the interesting uh, difficulties that you have if you are writing the the speech for the Liberal Democrat leader is because you can't really announce policy because it has to pass through your process. And the number one most effective way to make sure your policy change will not pass conference in the spring or indeed in the autumn is to announce it 
in the leader's speech at the end of the conference season, which means you kind of need to announce things in a way which makes them seem new mm-hmm. or as if they have like solely been, you know, part of your ethos. So she had a bit where she kind of went, oh, you know, kind of like the NHS is so important and that's why a government I lead will enact policies that came out of a working group set up by Vince Cable. And, <laughs> yeah. and, yeah. and it's just one of those things where you're just like, is that why though? Yeah, yeah. That kind of feels to me that actually those two things aren't necessarily, necessarily linked. But I hadn't quite realised how titanically spoiled I was by the fact that David Cameron's conference speeches were very good and Ed Miliband's conference speeches were always very good. And it, it very much was a speech where I think in terms of what the strategic beats they want, which is obviously to just to go, which is basically just their extended chirpsing of Remainers, I think it kind of worked quite well. But yeah. it really did feel like it was written around, like, various sort of points. Do you know what I mean? Like, yeah. Just yeah. Kind of... What I thought was interesting, unless I'm mistaken, she didn't really go into that revoking Article 50 policy in her speech. She just went back to stop Brexit. Yeah. Which, I mean, presumably it was written well in advance, but... I wonder if that's a sign that the revoke Article 50 thing is they've realised that it can alienate some people potentially and like they in they brought that into policy to bolster their stop Brexit message but that's the message and not revoke. Yeah, I think in practice, the point I keep coming back to is at the start of the year only 4 out of 10 people knew what the Lib Dems Brexit position was and now it's only 6 out of 10. Mm. So I kind of think, yeah, then like... Yeah, revoke, it's such a weird word, Article 50, you know, what, what, yeah. yeah. I, I think, yeah, the whole thing, in fact, she, I mean, she did quite literally at one point in the speech go, it's about building an open society, is basically their analysis of, like, not, not just what's happening here, but what's happening throughout, sort of, you know, the, adva- you know, the world's advanced democracies is kind of politics dividing on. I really don't like open v. closed as a divide because I just feel it's such a unpleasant way about talking about Clo- yeah, like I see, yeah. Mm-hmm. In the same way, I really don't like somewheres versus anywheres. But yeah, they're essentially like going, look, hey, we're open, we're open, shouldn't you try us? So I think that is why they didn't do it, but it did mean mm. that it just didn't actually have an argument as a speech. Yeah, and that was a trend in a lot of the speeches, actually, that because obviously like lots of the key party figures have their own speech at various points throughout the conference, you, you just felt like you'd heard the same things over and over and over again by the end of just like the key messages on Brexit and the NHS and how bad Boris Johnson and Jeremy Corbyn are. Yeah, I think actually the only... It's odd because lots of the MPs made very good speeches from the floor in defence of like the hey, yeah. hey conference, here's why you should pass your policy, my, yeah, this policy. But yeah, it's this weird thing where somehow the set-piece speeches in Lib Dems are the only ones where people don't bother to write to persuade. And I thought, interestingly... Mm. The counterexample to that is the one person who, although, you know, in many, many ways he's always been pretty Lib Demi, is Chaka Ramuna, who, although it was not a speech I think he would have given at Labour, well, obviously it wasn't because it was critical about the Labour Party, but in many ways he gave the most like a conference speech than you'd see elsewhere, conference speech, because he actually did kind of, even though obviously like all of those policy things were their party's belief for years, he did basically do a kind of like liberal values, the EU peace project, which... A, was actually very good, but also they loved it. I thought Swinton's delivery was actually really, really quite good. I think it's the first time where, because I realise she's like the first person to lead a party who is in my age bracket, 
Um, I was the first time when, like, she's given, like, a speech about, like, the government I've led. I'm not like, oh, yeah, no, lol. I can't take that seriously. I'm not willing to be in that stage of life just yet. Uh, I thought she did quite a good job of, like, not... Of of seeming, like, faintly plausible-ish. Yeah. Uh, And, crucially, the fact that the speech didn't hang together, I only noticed when I read it back. Yeah, because people just want to be moved and stirred and motivated and, yeah, have opportunities to applaud and feel united in their Lib Dem values, which I think she did. Yeah, she's yeah, I think she did like yeah, it's one of those things where I kind of think from a from a news clip perspective it worked well because it was just them going, We're open, we're open mm-hmm. which makes sense. And from a their value it was basically like a, you know, our values. It didn't do my absolute favourite thing that Lib Dem leader speeches sometimes do of the party being a new party and an old party depending on the applause line in the individual because <laughs> sometimes you'll have like, you know, what we is a new party, not like the two old parties five minutes later this party's values which since the introduction of of primary school education by gladstone it's just like so are you a new party or are you the second oldest party which is it guys <laughs> yeah just just work it out for me this was also uh, your first experience of glee club yeah um, you know what so um yesterday i still had the land in my head but just as an annoying earworm so i just had the land the land and nothing else on mm. a loop all day it's like just about receded and now it's back again probably yeah. but yes yeah, so for those who don't know glee club is a time-honored tradition at lib dem conference where they sing basically political hymns the like the most famous one is the land which is quite stirring, quite it a good. A, it's a great song. Quite a good protest song. We did sing it yeah. with Sam Gima and Sarah Wollaston. Yeah, they gate crashed the because yeah. they one of them came up and they were like because there were a lot of journalists there and they were like, "Are you guys actually going to come up and sing anything, or are you?" And and <laughs> I was just like, "We will come up and sing if you play the land again." <laughs> yeah, so it was um, this is what Michael Foot used to do when he was at Tribune it's, uh, because he rightly thought that it is a banger. Uh, yeah, and then when they uh, that happened and this was when Sam Gima came up. So it was good because it also meant that I think we got a m- much bigger cheer because yeah. we had the afterglow. Otherwise, we would have just been a bunch of people who were there, let's face it, for people to write the same story about the Tony Blair and F off and die chant. Because I kind of think, in an odd way, I, I sort of, I, I do think that the way that the press reports Glee Club is, it's not, it's not so much that it's not fair. It doesn't really accurately describe what they... Because it kind of makes it seem like, oh, and then they just sing that Tony Blair should F off and die. But all of the, other than the land and mm. we shall, so they have basically traditional protest songs and then, you know. Some more topical some ones. Some more topical sort of mm-hmm. satirical ones. The Tony Blair chant is about the fears that they had in the 90s. They would be merged, than, you know, that Paddy yeah. Ashdown was getting too close to them. Um, yeah, so the line is bye-bye to the great lib la Yeah. And it's one of those things where it's obviously a style of humour that some people, including lots of liberal Democrats, don't like. But um, it is slightly weird to me the way that it's often presented in the press as if like, and then they sung something mean about someone from another party as if like the song itself, that's the song as when it was written, as well as saying that about Tony Blair was incredibly critical of the then leader Paddy Ashdown, the then leader of the Lib Dems in the Lords, Bill Rogers, a mm-hmm. host of other Lib Dem figures. This is the same event in which they sing a song about how they got nothing out of the coalition. Yeah. Um, it's one of those things where it's just, like, it feels a bit like if, you know, when, like, Liz Truss, like, during the dying days of Theresa May would do one of her, like, hey, guys, I'm going to jokingly say something that you all kind of know is true about, like, myself or another department. It would be like if we, like, wrote, wrote that up and went, 
oh wow yeah savage attack by Liz Truss on Michael Gove it's just like Mm. Whereas really it was just the Liberal Democrats displaying their capacity for self-deprecation. Yeah. Normally being a little extra can be a bit much, but when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. it's time for a section we like to call you ask us so we've kind of saved over one aspect of lib dem conference suddenly occurs to me i should have suggested to listeners and i would do that because i imagine there will be at least one person who will have angrily sent me a message being like so are you gonna tackle the lgbt elephant in the room (laughs) so for me the best speech actually of the conference and i also think probably one of the best speeches i have seen at in party conference all top was from a man called Alex Willock who spoke about his own you know his own marriage his very mm. long the very long engagement than the fact that same-sex marriage was was illegal for so long and basically challenged both Philip Lee and the party for kind of turning a, a blind eye to some of the aspects of his voting record yeah it was pretty powerful that they, they had been engaged for 20 years and unable to marry and then the concluding line of his speech was something like you know Philip Lee I gather you're married I hope you're happy was it a long engagement it was really quite stirring in the context um and he was just a very good speaker he'd sort of circled around and alluded to it for quite a while and then arrived at that conclusion yeah so it was interesting at various points in the conference it came up at several points when the chief whip of the commons gave his parliamentary report and in the Q&A with Joe Swinson members asking how Philip Lee had been selected, what the process was. And I thought, I don't know if you agree, I think that the responses were not done terribly well in that people were raising their concerns about whether lessons had been learnt about the process and whether the LGBTQ members of the Lib Dems would be consulted in future. And the answer, to put it bluntly, was really, well, the, you know, if you want this party to grow, you're going to have to, to put up with this. We can't, you know, we can't just stick to a pure, tiny message and we're going to have to admit people to the party who we don't necessarily agree with, while also emphasising that Philip Lee did a long interview with the chief whip and they thought that his values did align with theirs. But I felt that the members who had concerns did not leave reassured. Yeah, I, I thought then, so the kind of the, the question that I, I didn't uh, usually quote because I'm, I'm incompetent, which I thought was a really good one because it basically asked, well, look, is, is this an institutional problem? And one of the things I find continually frustrating, yeah, with Labour's going like, oh, it's only a minority of members, whether you have an institutional problem is nothing to do with whether or not it's 1%, 5%, 10% or 100% of your members. It is solely about what your institutional response to it is. The Lib mm-hmm. Dems, you know, have a, hugely proud uh, history of, of backing LGBT rights you know they but they of course also have as with you know all of the other parties as with the various parties of the progressive left a patchy record on 
the attitudes of some of their MPs. And I think the you know kind of seeing it as a question of like, okay, well, we know that most of the people in this party's values are in the correct space. Are their institutions working? And I agree. I thought in the I thought yeah. Carmichael's responses were often a bit okay. It was a, it was a tense room. However, it's a lot. I, I'm sorry, it's a lot more tense if you are a party activist who has knocked on a bunch of doors and for free, and you feel like the party is not wel- a welcome space for you, than it is for the chief whip who sits for the safest Liberal Democrat seat, essentially on every metric. And then, well, I mean, there was one bit where he went, "Oh well, you know, I, you may not have noticed, but it was a busy week." And you just think, could you not be a little bit more? And I think it is worth saying that he did meet with. You know, people from the LGBT Liberal Democrats and the LGBT and the and the Liberal Democrat um, kind of immigrant supporters group, and they both did leave both publicly and privately, saying that they felt reassured. Yeah, and he had gone on something of a journey, but your institutions aren't just about what people feel if you do things in private. I think there was a bit of a failure to kind of acknowledge that it had made a lot of people in the party feel quite uncomfortable and as you say it was a kind of like well if you want to grow then sometimes you're just going to have to accept them we know better than you whether or not someone's really a liberal yeah and I think the problem was that they were simultaneously saying that they had been reassured that Philip Lee shared their values but also that they had to accept people with whom they disagreed and it sometimes seemed like the implication was you're going to have to accept that some people have different views on LGBTQ rights to you as this party grows and I think that was that was the blurry thing there was no need to say that if you were also saying that you've been reassured on Philip Lee's liberal values on this yeah that's it I mean it was also slightly weird and you know Tim Farron is a brilliant particularly a brilliant rally speech you really can tell slightly mm-hmm. awkwardly given the context you really can tell that this is someone who has been a preacher and yeah, he really does <laughs> do a kind of really sort of good kind of like yeah, you know, kind of tump-thumping, rabble-rousing thing. But it was slightly surreal watching a room that had been full of people going, I have this question, this question, and that question, have you done right? Then kind of, I mean, you know, yeah, then essentially eating out of Tim Farron's hand was yeah. a slightly strange journey. But I think this is the thing that about them that I do sometimes still find slightly odd, uh, having gone to, I realize this was my fifth Lib Dem conference. Um, True veteran. Is... Um, Lots of them weirdly are in the space of, well, not weirdly, yeah, completely consistently in terms of their, but are in this space of, you know, I, I don't care what he thinks, I care about his voting record. Now, I, to be honest, think there are yeah. bigger problems in Barron's voting record than that defence would accept. But it was slightly strange to go from, like, on the one hand, this, to on the other hand, I love Tim Farron, he's amazing, but yeah. <laughs> Now I'm joined by Emily to discuss a new app that the BBC has brought out, so, which you've written about for the NS, and you're going to just tell us about this new thing. So on Saturday, the BBC Philharmonic are rolling out a new app, which they've asked me to call a web app, not an app. I think that's because you can only use it while you're in the concert hall. It's not, it's not available all the time. Right where audience members can get live information sent to their phone during a concert. So snippets of information about the orchestra, the conductor, the music that's being played, kind of telling you what to listen out for. So I think the idea is that it makes classical more accessible. But Stephen had quite a strong reaction to this when I told him I was writing about it. So it's weird, it's weird because <laughs> I, I had like, a surprisingly... Yeah, I have a surprisingly visceral opposition to this as an idea, even though... 
So instinctively, right, I completely get that if you enjoy it, you know, you do you. I'm not something, you know, like when I like listen to music, you know, sometimes I like close my eyes or read a book or like I think there are loads and loads of ways to enjoy music and they're all fine. But I hadn't quite realised how attached I am to listening in ignorance. <laughs> like it's one of those things where I'm kind of like I'm intensely happy with just being like, oh, that thing that sounds a bit like brass in like Stalingrad is great. For reasons I can't articulate, <laughs> I find it so stress-inducing. I mean, you go to, like, the proms and stuff. Like, do you not find the idea of, like, having to, like, listen to the music and then getting the, the yeah. update? I mean, I guess I kind of see where you're coming from, but I think, like, it's interesting because the thing that normally puts people off mm. is that they're ignorant, yeah. I think. Because it's just, I think sometimes it can just be this huge mass of sound and like you know if you're going to see a 45 minute symphony and and you don't you know you don't know what to listen for how do you know where to start because it can be it can be quite boring I think so yeah I think that's kind of where they're coming from but I do know what you mean that there is something about just switching off while you're listening to music which the app doesn't allow you to do so yeah I'm, I'm not sure but I think it can it can only really be a good thing if it's bringing in different audiences who wouldn't normally go Oh yeah, and no, I'm definitely like. In, so this thing is in my in my head. I'm definitely pro. It. <laughs> I just am. Re- I'm yeah. You know, I'm just really surprised at how. Un- I, I, yeah, it just. I this is the I the idea of it. I just having an emotional response. Aren't it's a bit you? like what I don't like about like um. So there are two times when I start to get like a bit TPA about the license fee. One is when I feel that their website is chasing viral traffic, and the other is when they don't have advert breaks on Radio Three, and instead they're just like, oh, you know, like this thing was it's it's just like no no i i i i i'm this is this is too smart for me and i'm finding it it's its presence is stressing me out what i so cuz i think like one of the best sort of bits of programming in terms of making classical music more accessible for people and definitely something which has like hugely expanded what i listen to is well it still goes on is classic fm's um final score mm. where they basically did video game soundtracks and then kind of went oh and here's its influences and it was just like very accessible and very nice so i think i think it's a brilliant idea and yet yet somehow i'm so against it at the same time and i can't really work out why <laughs> um but so you um yeah write about this kind of stuff a lot mm. so what you know are you likely to get this app i don't know really because i think i i don't find classical music intimidating because i you know I, I did a music degree and i write about it and i'm kind of happy to go and just well i either hear something i already know about or let it wash over me i don't find letting it wash over me difficult in a, in a sense but so so i'm not sure i mean i'd like to experience it just to see what it's like because i'm sure it would give me a lot of insight as well even as somebody who who is interested in it already but i think the thing that i find the most interesting is that the other past approaches to making classical music more accessible have been the complete opposite and sort of tapped into your preference which is like lie on a beanbag in a car park and listen to like you know listen to bark for 2 hours and it's completely dark and you're all wearing a blindfold and it's all quite wacky so it's it's kind of a completely different approach because it's asking people to engage with it rather than accept they won't engage so yeah that's kind of what I find interesting so it will be good to see how it goes it's the first time that anything like this has been available for I think it's going to be available for their whole season from Saturday so at every concert everyone will have the option or everyone with a smartphone will have the option to 
to use the app. So it, it will be, you know, actually indicative of, of, um, of whether it's working, I think. So it's interesting about kind of music writing. This is actually an observation I've stolen wholesale from someone who quote tweeted me a while ago in a, in a pleasant way. When, when um, Lover came out, and lots of people were understandably getting annoyed about the lyrics of London Boy. But I can't really hear lyrics, right? I just like people like it says this and it's just like it honestly sounds to me like doop 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 doop. And someone quoted you saying, Oh, it's really interesting how in music journalism people who write about lyrics have almost entirely crowded out people who who write about mm. sound. Mm. Which I don't think is good or bad one way or the other. But I mean, do you think that is also true of people who write about classical music, mm. where people who write about kind of meaning and intent? Or do you think there is more kind of writing about sound? Well, I'm not sure, really. I mean, I think people write a lot about technique in classical because there's so much more to dissect in terms of like the the craft. Well, I say more. There's not more to dissect than pop, but there is a lot going on with technique and sort of an artist journey and stuff that people can talk about. But I think people tend to pivot to like meaning intent or lyrics because it's just so difficult to write well about music without sounding really naff, basically. You know, it just ends up with this like string of adjectives. And the alternative to that is to use really technical language, which then excludes people from even reading about it. So I think it is, yeah. it's, it's difficult. The other thing is that this app just to just to come back to the, the hard sell of the app um, <laughs> is um, it's it's really short snippets of information. So I think, you know, program notes or a big, long analytical music piece can be really intimidating. But I think it's, you know, it's nice to break it down in that way and have people sort of engage with short form musical information. You've been listening to the New Statesman podcast with me, Stephen Bush, our political correspondent, Alva Ray. It's recorded by Emily Boothall and produced by Nick Hilton. Our music is Devil by the Devil, licensed under Creative Commons. There is this big space of ungoverned disorder where nothing is being done and we're just kind of holding up our hands and going, well, don't know what we could do. I'm Jason Pack. And I'm Alex Hall-Hall. And we're the hosts of Disorder, a brand new podcast from Goalhanger, where we'll be connecting the dots using our own experiences, as well as talking to people at the forefront of global affairs. All seeking to work out why are the world powers no longer coordinating as they once did? The trouble is the United States, but also some European societies, are so divided. How did we get here? The modern version of the culture war in which the fight that matters is not the real one. It's about winning certain kinds of arguments online. What can we do to fix it? How do you repair disorder? It's by becoming a community. Search Disorder wherever you get your podcasts. 